this is David Suisa. Welcome to my podcast. Today, I'm delighted to have Rob Long, somebody I've been meaning to meet for many years. Why? Because he's a unicorn. He is the <laughs> only Hollywood writer I've ever met who's also a conservative pundit who writes brilliant opinion pieces in National Review Online, founder of Ricochet, a center-right uh, website that's got a whole podcasting network, Rob Long. Great to have you today. Happy to be here. That's a pretty good introduction. I don't. I do not live up to any of those things. But okay. well, you know, the, the fact that you were uh, the key guy on Cheers for many years, and uh, one of them, uh, you were one of the one key of guys, team. right? That's what I read on. Anyways, and you've been, you know, Kevin can wait, and lots of other uh, Hollywood writing that you've done. And when I saw your writing in National Review Online, I was thinking to myself, you know, I've never seen that combination. How is it possible that you can be a writer in Hollywood that writes for a conservative website? Well, the good news is that they don't, they don't read them. You know, nobody <laughs> I work with reads it. They don't, when I was writing for National Review Magazine, I still am, nobody reads National Review. In fact, if some people, when they heard I wrote for National Review Magazine, they just assumed it was The Nation. Uh-huh. And that's okay. Yes. So like I think I was like I skirted I, I scooted out of a lot of trouble just by being a writer for the nation. Right. But I, I, I imagine that all your buddies in Hollywood are probably more liberal than you are. Fewer than you think. Mm. I think fewer than you think. Look, I actually I think being, you know, center writer, I mean I don't know what I am now, but I mean whatever I whatever I am is not sort of in the normal Hollywood politics. It's certainly to the right of that. I think being that in politics and in, in, in Hollywood anyway, right now it's not that hard. It's actually kind of nice. Um, even in, the, in my first starting out, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to be, you know, right wingish. Right. Uh, and all the people I work with, the stars of Cheers, some of them were like major, major contributors to uh, the Democratic Party. Some were like major contributors to the President of the United States at the time, and. Um, they didn't care. They were sort of curious. They were more. I remember Ted Danson, you know, sitting me down and just curiously asking me questions without any judgment. I would much rather be, a, and I think it's just demonstrably true. To be, it's much safer and better to be a conservative in Hollywood than it is to be a conservative in any American university. Mm. Like Hollywood is so tolerant, and the American academic institutions are so intolerant that anybody I knew who was conservative or Republican or even like not super liberal. Um, at a university should shut up, keep their mouth shut. Did people know that you were conservative in the, in Hollywood? Yeah, kind of. Like, I, I don't I mean, I, I used to, like, I, look, I, I hear a lot of stories from people about um, how they feel like they didn't get work or they were, you know, blacklisted or whatever. I have never had that. I've never known. Maybe I have been. I have known of it. But I can, I can tell you that there were uh, meetings I had and places that I went and shows that I worked on and projects that I was hired on because of my politics. Mm. So my experience has been, maybe I'm a, I'm a, you're right, a unicorn, completely fantasy, ma magical realism. I've just kind of scooted through. Um, I, uh, my old dear, great, late friend, Andrew Breitbart, used to yell at me when I would say this and say- I met him on the last day of his life. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. He's a great guy. Uh, he used to yell at me when I'd say this and say, shut up, there are a lot of people here who have lost work. Mm. And I'm like, that may be true, but I haven't. So You know, I had John Voigt here- uh few weeks ago and same thing with him he's succeeded yeah you know and he's pretty loud about his conservative <laughs> views yeah yeah doesn't hide it yeah but you're right on the uh, academia oh man it's, it's a whole different ball game in fact i know people who are you know they influences how they write their essays i um was walking down sixth avenue in manhattan about two weeks ago and this happens in, to me in, in the west village a lot and someone stopped me and said are you rob long yeah i'm a big fan like really? Like of what? Like what do you, you know? Like, I always have to figure. I have all these different pockets of my life. I got to like figure out what it is you're a fan of. And and he said, I you know I listen to Rick, Ricochet podcast and I, I see you on Gutfeld on Fox News. And I must have looked at him like, really? And he said, Yeah, 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 yeah. He said, he said yeah. he's like, uh, yeah. There are a lot of you know, he was like this is the West Village. A lot of gay guys are totally into Fox News and like we're concerned. Seriously? Yeah. And I said that's really funny. It's really interesting. And he says, he said my sister. Said she's a law professor at a big university on the East Coast, and she's a first First Amendment lawyer, that First Amendment professor. That's her specialty, First Amendment. And she is a little bit more conservative than he is, and she knows never, ever, ever to say anything that veers from the political orthodoxy of the far left. 
the, the irony of being a First Amendment professor specializing in free speech and to, be, to know in your bones you cannot exercise that right because you will be fired or ostracized or lose tenure from other academics in, a, in an academic institution which is supposed to be about free inquiry, to me is baffling, mind-boggling, and tragic. It's a new right that we're creating, which is the right to not be offended by an <laughs> yeah, alternate that's view. Right. That's right. Yeah, I don't... Yeah, that's a, that is the new right to, like, walk around like as, you're, uh, as a, if you're, like, an eggshell. Like, a no. constant uh, safe space. Yeah. Uh, but speaking of <clears throat> safe space, we can segue right into the most divisive word in American history, the word that starts with T, R-U-M-P. Oh, yeah. Hey, I'm triggered. It's... <laughs> um, yeah, it's the yeah. ultimate trigger word. Uh, in the Jewish community, we had an incredibly divisive moment over the Iran nuclear deal. Right. And my partners and I, the Jewish Journal, were saying, we have never seen it this divisive, this bad. A year later, Trump gets elected, and we said, it made Iran look like Club Med. Yeah, and the irony is that when Trump was running when during the, the, the primaries, and someone said, I think it was the, Altman, the full complement of, of, of candidates, one of the questions was, will you repeal the Iran deal? And they all said, yeah, absolutely, 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 down the line. And then they got to Trump. He goes, I don't know, I'm going to read it. I'm going <laughs> to read it. Can I read it first? Let me read it. And if it's, you know, I, and I, I remember seeing his performance there and thinking, actually, I kind of like that guy. I mean, I, now I don't. I mean, I, uh, I had a, Trump's, my, my problem with Trump is that every now and then he does stuff, and I'm like, I like that guy. And then, of course, he reverts to mean, and I just, I have to, you know, cover myself in pillows and cry into the night. But uh, he said the right answer, which was, I'll look at it, and if I have to pull out, we'll pull out. And that's what he did, which I thought was very smart. Yeah, in a sense, you know, everybody's got opinions about Trump. He's definitely the most divisive figure I've ever seen in my life. We have stories in our community of Shabbat dinners and families that get broken up, and it's just out of control, right? right? Uh, But in a sense, I think he's brought out the worst in America. Because, uh, you know, when he does something bad and something that I'm really upset with, the, the left starts to call him Hitler and oh, treasonous yeah. and everything. And then I'm starting to think about that rather than the original <laughs> I said, sort of mistake. I said on our podcast today, I said that the, 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 he, he gets you to say and do weird things in such weird ways that when he's compared to Hitler, you end up saying – I end up saying things like, well, wait a minute. I mean, Hitler did invent the freeway and the, and the VW. Right. Like there's got you know I don't think Trump could successfully invade a Western uh, European country. I mean Hitler had some skills, you know. Like Trump has zero except his ability to you know negotiate his way out of trouble, which is hard to do now for him. I think. I mean, for me, the downside of Trump. I mean, among the other things, the policy things that I have, I differ with him on, which are, I I really do differ with him on, on trade and a lot of foreign affairs and things like that. Um, is the style problem, which is that we are now, I think our side, my side anyway, is now slowly resembling more of the people on the other side that I thought were so ludicrous. So that everything Obama did was fantastic. He was covered in a giant halo. Anybody who said Obama was wrong about something was a racist and horrible. And and, and we've adopted that perspective on our side that, that, that you can't, if, you're, if, if, you, if you love Trump, you love every single thing about him. And if you don't like him, you must hate him with a passion. And that leaves a lot of us in the middle who I don't like him. I don't. I wouldn't want my children to be like him. I don't want to be his friend. I don't want to know him. I think he's a loathsome pig. I really do. I think this, we rarely had a person with that that kind of hard, low, mentally and emotionally unstable character in the White House. I really don't. Well, I think, but on the other hand, I'm you know good tax bill. Yeah, I think <laughs> we've taken on the dynamics of war, and yeah. uh, during wartime. You're supposed to defend your side no matter what. And I think that's the mistake that's been yeah. made. And yeah. it started with Bush, George Bush, during the Iraq I, War. I totally agree. You know, and during the anti-Obama. But it's been going, it was it's been going like for war. Yeah, it's been going for a while. And I think also we, we lost the ability. Like, it used to be the bedrock American, you know, culture was that if you, re- for at least for 150 years, if you're in politics, you were probably a crook or deficient in some way. Uh, there was nothing lower than a congressman, right? You got to run every two years, which means you got to be like kissing every car dealer's butt in your district just for the money. You got to like, it's amazing how low you have to sink to be a successful congressman. And nobody said, um, we didn't use all these pompous terms like civil servant and in the public service for these politicians. We knew what they were, they're politicians. 
If you look at old time, old style cartoons, it was always like the big fat cat senator, like with a big stogie and like a, a, a money bags being given by the railroad trust, and everybody kind of knew that was what it was. And it was only recently, pretty much in the '60s, that we decided, no, no, or maybe even the New Deal, maybe it was Roosevelt, decided, no, 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 these are people who are, they're crusaders for good. Oh, you know what? what look what sacrifices they've made to be a senator. A United States ever met a U.S. senator? They're the worst people in the world. They are the most pompous, self-satisfied grandees swanning around with their, like, perks and everything. They, and they look down on the president. Yeah. And they promise everything. Yeah, right. I mean, but that is how the, that's, that's okay. Mm-hmm. But we're supposed to be better than that. We're supposed to say as citizens, yeah, it's a dirty job, and so we got these, these, these sleazy crooks to do it. Um, but we're not supposed to, like, identify with it. We're supposed to be able to say that we, we think people in parties or the party apparatchiks are fools. Right. We've internalized politics. Yeah. It dominates our consciousness now. We define ourselves to our ideology, yeah. and we forget about the rest it's of It's Yankees-Red Sox. You know, when the, if you're yes. a Red Sox fan, when the Yankees win, it's because they cheat. You know how much I hate the Celtics? <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Right. We try not to have green in our house. Yeah, see, that's right. When Shani and I went to look at universities in Boston, she wore Laker colors. But you probably but did okay there. I mean, it was probably not, not, not a problem. So my fanaticism, I get yeah. it out of my system. That's what you're supposed sports. to. That's how you're supposed to do it. Right, but then it's now into politics, and I have friends of mine. It's very difficult to talk to them. But listen to the politics. way how we argue about politics now. Um, they started it. Oh, yeah, well, right. what were you, uh, what did you say when Obama, like, it's all these weird kind of, like, incredibly childish arguments that we have in the most childish way, because none of us now remember that they're supposed to be horrible. They're, they're supposed right. to be, they're not, you know, these are these are people who couldn't build businesses or, you know, they have these weird, every president's got some weird thing going on with his dad in his brain, and they have strange families. I mean, the Obamas probably are the most normal and they're not normal, but they're the most normal. Uh, everyone else has got some weird stuff going on. And I mean, good Lord, Trump and his kids and his dad. Oh, man, the stories of his dad. Like, it's well, weird stuff. You know, sometimes it's easier to talk about saving the world and to talk about, you know, demonstrations and so forth than to do homework with your kids and to do mm-hmm. the hard work of daily living. Yeah. You know? Well, that's the, somebody was, I'm afraid I'm going to mangle this philosophy, but someone's philosophy was that. At a certain point, we decided that it didn't matter the little things you did, the invisible things you did. Mm-hmm. Um, what mattered were the, 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 the public positions you took. So, um, and, and so everybody got promoted to like crusader. So even like reporters with the old movies, you know, reporters are always cynical and drinking and they don't, you know, just typing away and looking right. for the lead. And that was, the, that was a reporter. We supposed to like, those are kind of cool guys, but they're basically amoral. Somewhere around Watergate, they turned into crusading, you know, the, 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 the sacred journalist. And even now you hear this horrible, like, self-satisfied, pompous stuff about journalism. And Well, look at technology. It's a big part of this uh, change in dynamic because everybody can publish on Twitter and on Facebook and on Post and so forth. So we can be visible. So what you're talking about, this idea of my public self, yeah. is now so much easier to, it's always been easier, yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, the kids at home, you still haven't done the homework no. with them. No, no, you no. haven't taken her to dance class. No. She needs to go to Office yeah. Depot to get her freaking right. binder. Right. And you're there tweeting away. But how, how great you are. How great you are. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, right. And who was Whether it? you're Democrat or Republican. Oh, yeah, of course. It's, I think it's a modern thing. I think it, it doesn't really matter. Um, there's an old, you know, as an Episcopalian, I can do this. There's an old. You're I, Episcopalian? I, oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. I thought um, you were Jewish. Well, see, that's what that's that's how good I am at being an Episcopalian. I, the yeah, the old joke is, how do you make an Episcopalian look at his shoes? You mention Jesus or money, which is kind of like oh, oh, wrong conversation to be in. That's the usual uh, Episcopalians like that's <laughs> when they went out of the conversation. But it was Saint somebody, one of these Saint Augustine, one of these famous writer saints, which I probably would know if I was a Roman Catholic, um, said that the goal should be to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ every day. With words only if necessary, meaning, shut up, mm. just go be a good person in your life. Uh, no one's shutting up right now. No, no one knows how to shut up. No one is shutting up. No. I, I think one of the things that I find sort of amusing 
is that we in the journalistic uh, world were always complaining that politicians use euphemism. Yeah. They never tell us what they really think. They right. just give us their right. talking points and all that. And finally, God called our bluff and he sent us Donald Trump and we're saying, enough. Enough, you, and more euphemisms. <laughs> enough, enough. Please, <laughs> right, right. please send us euphemisms. Right, right. Exactly. We're back. We're sorry, Can sorry. You please not, weasel word this. We didn't this. mean it. Right. We didn't mean it. Right, right. Right, he called our bluff, the son of a gun. And he's also like a New Yorker, so there's like... He talks more than he needs to talk and does this weird seesawing language. This, this could be a lot of stuff. Maybe it's not a lot of stuff. It's sort of, um, I mean, the the person he sounds reminds me the most of is sort of Jackie Mason, weirdly, right? Because, like, they're, they're New Yorkers. This kind of, like... Bluster. A, a bluster up and, and back, you need up and that. back. When you negotiate yeah. for a building or something, you're always blabbering even, away. Even today, he's, he's walking back that ridiculously... The, Stupid, stupid thing he said in, with Putin about how the Russians had nothing to. The Russians, I don't know why they would have. I think it's Freight Razor was, but somebody said, did the Russians meddle in the, in the in the election? I don't know why they would have. Right now, I want to ask you about that. From you know, we've had one low after another, yeah. right, since he got elected, yeah. and I've been reading the last twenty four hours that this is the lowest of the lowest. What and just for our listeners who don't know what we're talking about, it was the press conference. Press conference in that Helsinki. He gave with. Uh, President Putin from Russia, where he seemed to take the side of Putin rather than his own intelligence. Rather than the House and the Senate and the right. intelligence community and right. sort of every who had who had <laughs> all who the just evidence. indicted yeah. twelve Russians right. for you know uh, right. It was like when during uh, in the elections when uh, what's his name Kardashian not the kids but the lawyer is like I don't know if OJ did it <laughs> I don't know. Did he do it, by the way? Uh, he did it. Yeah. <laughs> we all know he did it. Oh, okay. Right. So I saw a whole movie that said uh, his son did it. Yeah, right. But uh, <laughs> back on our friend Donald, uh, is this one of the lowest of the lowest? Well, Rob? with Trump, you never know. Like, Trump, the question is, is it is it low on the on the objective scale of low? Then, uh, yeah, because it's lazy and slovenly, and it's driven by um, his unwillingness and inability as, because he's a very deeply insecure person, to say what everybody knows. So this is all self-inflicted. All he has to say is, yeah, they meddled. Of course they meddled. Does anybody think or can point to a moment where the meddling is what caused Hillary Clinton to lose the election? I mean, that's... That's that's the real... That's stupid. Like, right. there, there's no evidence of that. Is there evidence that they meddled? Yeah. Was it effective? I don't know. But it, that would be... It'd be hard, a, a, a more secure person, a more mentally and emotionally stable person, which is frankly who I think we should have in the White House, just my fundamental bedrock <laughs> requirement is that you be emotionally and, and, and mentally stable, at least, um, would not have a problem with that, would be able to sort of sail through it. I think he's paranoid that his election is going to be seen as illegitimate, that he wanted because of that. I think his vanity, his ego... Is so, but that's that's that, that that's the problem with that's the problem with having somebody in there who isn't curious or knowledgeable at all about American politics. Because if you are curious or knowledgeable, you'd know that that is not what's going to hurt you. At the same time, he's got these instincts that somehow create yeah. positive outcomes, and that's what complicates the picture for me. Is for example, every president promised they would move the embassy to Jerusalem. Everyone, and I mean, I, I've been there. You know, they would come to APAC and they'd say, oh, no, no, I'm the one that's going to do it. And then he promised it, but he lived up to his word, yeah. whether people liked the idea or not. Uh, I certainly did. I mean. Well, I think, look, there, there are benefits. Like, he, he was and look dealt, at the economy. Yeah, he, he was dealt a great hand, right? There's, it was an, an economy in um, rebuilding for eight, almost 10 years after the um, financial collapse. Um so he came in at the beginning of that. But just by the way, that's fine. That's actually American politics. That's supposed to work. Uh, he was a he's our new a New Yorker president, which we've never really had. So his ability to understand things like Israel. I mean, everybody he borrowed money from, everybody he owed money to, everybody else in that business, every party he ever went to. This guy's been to more pro-Israel fundraisers than any American president. Like he's like he's already like yeah, fine, yeah, I get it. Um, and he 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 uh, he joined a government as the third part, the third piece of a Republican majority. Right, and I think part of the great hand is that we're tired of losing, and Americans yeah. like to win. And it's not that we don't like war; it's that we hate to lose. The mistake, the real mistake in Iraq, is that we got our ass kicked. You know, we lost, and we keep losing. And I think under Obama, we didn't get a sense of victory. 
uh, for anything, especially in like foreign affairs. We kept, and I think what you have here is uh, low self-esteem for the country. And you know, Trump comes in and says, you know, this is going to be like the Lakers, the Yankees. We're going to win again. Yeah, it's I mean, quite superficial. It is, yeah, but there's something <laughs> to be said for it. I, I think, I, yes, maybe. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't see a lot of winning. I see, uh, I see a lot of trouble. And well, I mean, no, but there was losing before he came in, so maybe, yeah, no, I, the I, look, perception. So maybe I, I that totally was part agree. of the. Hand. I totally agree. I think there's no, I don't think there's really any full understanding of just how dismal the Obama presidency was for the country. Not not just in the performance of the of the president and the economy. I, I, Can you elaborate on that? I mean, that a lot of people voted for Barack Obama because they wanted him to be a great president. And I'll just, even more specifically, a lot of white people voted for him because they wanted him to be a great president and they wanted him to be a great president for the African-American community. And at every twist and turn, at every moment where he could have had a sister soldier moment, where he could have had a tough moment, he chose this sort of progressive academic um, avenue that disappointed a lot of people. I mean, uh, let me put it this way: uh, Jesse Jackson was tougher on his black audiences than Barack Obama ever was. Now, mostly I think it's because Jesse Jackson had spoke from some authority. He was from there. He understood them. And Barack Obama's kind of like a, an alien from another planet who landed in the south side of Chicago and acted like he was black. But he, at every, time, every moment he could have talked about really important things. He could have been this avatar for um, a renaissance in that community. You think he reinforced the sense of victimhood? I think he was completely uninterested in changing the life aspirations and hopes for African Americans. I don't think it I don't think there was a moment where he thought about their future and what they needed and what they needed from a president. From a president who looked like them. From a president who was uniquely, finally, uniquely positioned to speak to that community with real authority and and grace and forgiveness and love and all the things you need to get people to sort of change. He seemed to, like he had the optics of helping the black community. But what you're saying is that uh, the, the results were not there. No, you can see the results were not there in the, in the metrics of those, mm-hmm. of their lives. They right. just weren't there. From, uh, I read an analysis that, you know, Obama had two great accomplishments that he was obsessed with, one domestic and one international. Domestically, it was Obamacare, mm-hmm. and internationally, it was the Iran nuclear deal. And he <laughs> probably so weird. they're like they're like umbrella accomplishments. That's strange though. He it's probably, like eight years, and like this are like, like such tiny little things, you know. Uh, for him, uh, during his first term, he said, "I'd rather get nationalized healthcare, which has, has not happened in almost a hundred years. No president has ever accomplished that, than win my second term." That's how important it was for him and the Iran and and maybe he felt that that re, you know relieved him of his obligations to the the poor and you know as long as I can provide health care who knows I'm just speculating but internationally the Iran nuclear deal has had some horrible effects it was the domino that helped ignite the refugee crisis in Europe oh without a doubt I mean I, you know there's it was it was not a successful foreign policy gambit but also seems like not not the kind of thing that you you want to base your two-term presidential legacy on. Remember, he was elected in 2008, 53% popular vote. That was a major, major majority vote that we haven't had in this country in 30 years since, since Reagan. I mean, it was a decisive victory, or since I think it's Bush and Dukakis, anyway. That is really remarkable. And instead of, like, building on that and... He squandered it. Even the for me, even Obamacare is a perfect example of the squandering. Obamacare uh, could have been could could still be active, and 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 he could have taken at least two or three of the ideas that were sort of prevalent and were on the other side, and ad- and, and incorporated them in Obamacare. And Obamacare would not have been suffering this sort of death of a thousand cuts it is now. Simply one would be. Um, Interstate uh, competition, and the other would be, which is what he would hated, were the, the uh, ability for you to buy a high deductible plan. I mean, I've sort of been doing you know, just deep right. drilling into this, so this may be too wonky. But those are two things that Republicans really liked, and they were not. They didn't. They didn't kill Obamacare. 
They would not have like undermined Obamacare at all. They would have helped it. They would have been the kind of thing that LBJ did, you know? Well, you know, I spoke to a politician last night. He's running for Senate in uh, New Jersey, this guy, Bob Huggin. And he's actually an expert because he spent 20 years in the medical healthcare field. And he said one of his biggest problems with Obamacare is that it really hurt the working poor. And he uses his words carefully, not the poor, the working poor. Right. So if you make a certain amount of money, I forget the number he said, it's, it's the low amount of money, uh, the deductible ends up costing you almost $4,000 if something happens, and people literally could not afford the deductible. So if you, they were not poor enough. Right. And there's a huge segment of the population. That, that, that's that always hard. the case in every sort of federal program. There's always a group of people who work for a living who are not doing great, but they still work for a living. They pay their bills, and they're like, why am I bothered to pay my bills? Like, I'm not rich enough to the, that, that it doesn't matter, and I'm not broke enough that somebody's going to pay them for me. That's always the case, right? They used to, even in, uh, in the, the tax rate, they called it the donut for a while, where you were like, you were just right there in the middle and you were just getting killed. And the guy a little bit below you was not getting killed and the guy really right above you had a fancy account. And, and a you were lot of them are getting killed. A lot of getting right. Obamacare. But Obamacare itself could have been, you know, health insurance and health insurance reform or like issues that he could have, he could have gathered people together. He could have put it, he could have done it in a way that wasn't deeply, deeply partisan is what he did. Another thing I heard last night was we could save $150 billion if smokers would cut down on their smoking, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, so it's like they never ask us to do anything. So that's basically true. That's it's right. smoke four packs a day for 40 years. Don't worry. We'll, take we'll care spend of you. the $10 million yeah, right. to keep you alive. And it's Yeah, I mean, it's interesting about that and, and sort of all those things is that um, we have, I mean, especially if you notice, that, you notice this if you're a conservative, right? Over time, we have developed into a very, we have a developed in, really interesting attitude where all the important stuff that really matters to you and your life and your family's life. So your health and the food on the table and education, all those things that used to be like, these are the big ticket items that you think about if you're a parent or you're even just a person. That now we expect the government to pay for. So it's okay, you can tax me as long as you pay for my health care and my education and the stuff that I really need. And so what it really has turned into is that our paychecks, after the government, you know, takes money away to pay for the important stuff, it's really kind of like an allowance. And this is what, what this is what the, the society lets you keep to spend on whatever you want. You can buy candy with it. You could buy. It's uh, infantilizing. Yeah, yeah. You, that's that's your allowance and whatever you keep. But if you if you demand more of that money, then you're just being spoiled. Right, and uh, there's something anti-American about it. One yeah. of your colleagues at National Review, who I'm a big fan of, Yuval Levin. Oh, yeah, Yuval's great. Amazing. And in, in one of his books, he spoke about just the, the, the three entities of America, which is, you know, you have the government, you have the individual, and in the middle, you have community, all these institutions that really created America. Right. So in my community, you know, I'm a member of my synagogue, and the government has nothing to do with it. We help each other out. Somebody needs a job. Somebody's yeah. out of work. Somebody goes to the hospital. There's an enormous amount, like this network, of helping each other out through community and through institutions that made America special. This idea of skipping over that and expecting some amorphous, right? You know, inefficient government to uh, oh, sure. take care of your life. More people know, especially the more in California. More, more people know who. Their senator is someone who has a marginal impact on your life, even may I would say negligible, than who their county supervisor is, and or, how, or or where, or how the, the the California state government works. Like the people are just not interested in Sacramento at all, and that has a much more of a bigger impact. Or, or or for instance, there are people who do not know their neighbors, and do not go to a church or synagogue or some part of faith community, but spend a whole lot of time on. Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, which is not a which is not a real community. Those people cannot come to your aid. If right. you if you need if you have to right. take your kid to the hospital, you cannot have one of your Twitter followers come and feed your dog. Like they they're not there, right? But you can't have your neighbor do that, even if you hate your neighbor, even if you think your neighbor is a fool and votes the wrong way. It's like it's a very strange, it's a very strange way we've we've we have effortlessly entered into a sort of American society in 2018. It's a lot sexier to go to a, <laughs> a march that's going to be covered on CNN yeah. than it is to go to a neighborhood meeting, talk about a pothole, talk about security yeah. in your neighborhood. So it's like what you were talking about earlier, which is you know the. The, the small things in life. And now 
I think the Democrats are in trouble because in this emotionalism mm -hmm. that we're in right now, you get people like Bernie Sanders, and I, I actually hold them responsible for this new radical socialist movement <laughs> well, on He's the definitely left. responsible for Trump. You know, <laughs> yeah, and but, which is a form of radical socialism. Well, if you you ask know, me. look, I, I come from the advertising business, and you know what you're supposed to do in advertising is overpromise. Right, 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 right. You can get anything you want. Yeah, the the word sacrifice is not a popular word in America. You know, taste great, less filling. Right, you right, right. Best performance, super yeah. comfortable. Whatever you want, yeah. we got it. I can lose you, twenty right? pounds. Isn't there a pill? Yes. I guarantee you, there's a pill. Oh yes, yeah, everything's easy, right? Yeah. So here he comes along and says, "I've thought this through." And I've come up with this brilliant platform. Everything's free. Right. Just tell me what yeah. you want. Get it. And we're going to, and, and it's free, right? Mm -hmm. Whether it's tuition or, and now you see the, his followers like Ocasio-Cortez in, in New York that's sort of following the same thing. And it's very sexy. Yeah. To just say everything's free. But Trump followers too, you know. I mean, uh, that's one of, one of the things that Trump did, which was very smart in the primaries, was he identified a group of Republican or, or, or self-described conservative voters who did not want any did not want anyone to touch Medicare or Social Security. Now it doesn't matter whether you vote for Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or Mickey Mouse. Federal entitlements and entitlement spending in general, whether they be the unfunded liabilities of these states or, frankly, the unfunded liabilities of the federal government, that is what's going to destroy us. That's what's going to put us in the in the poorhouse. That's what's going to bankrupt us. Or I mean, that, that's what you think if you're a Republican. Right. If you're a progressive Democrat. You know how it really turns out. That's we're not going to go broke. We're just going to have sixty percent marginal income tax rate. You know, it's as if Madison Avenue has taken over America. <laughs> yeah. And we're promising a pain-free life. Yeah. The idea of pain has now been obliterated in America. It's yeah. a very anti-Jewish thing. Yeah. Yeah. Because right, we live for right. pain. <laughs> right. Exactly right. Exactly yeah, right. We've done we've we've done pain for thousands of years. And so do the Buddhists. You know, all 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 life is suffering. Pain-free, and no matter what, from the right or the left. So Trump, right. you know, pain-free because I'm going to fix all the problems we have now with globalism, and you know, I'm going to fix all those problems. They're not going to leave the country anymore, and it's this this illusion that you can lead a pain-free life. And also, I feel like I just read this book by uh, a writer named Jonathan Rauch. Really interesting book, and especially if you're in your 40s or 50s, it's really great. It's called The Happiness Curve. And what he discovered was that there was a certain point in his life, and he then did some more research and discovered that happens in a lot of people's lives who are in their own 40s and 50s, like early 50s, where they, they kind of run out of happiness. There's something wrong. It doesn't really matter whether they've been successful or not successful. And actually, he did all the research. It doesn't matter what country you live in or how rich you are. They find it, this kind of curve in Africa and Scandinavia and Mexico and South America here in China, this kind of dip where you're like, what? am I doing? And mostly it's because you're at a part of your life where you're old enough to, to have regret. You're old enough to know exactly what a day uh, in your life has been and what, at what time really means. And you're old enough to know that you're running out of time on the other side and you don't have any more of the essential juice you need to get going, which is optimism, which is a really a form of gratitude. And you have to find a way to get that back. You know, it's fascinating because we've been talking a lot about politics. And I think somebody can write a book on how politics and the obsession we have today with politics is bound to disappoint you and create <laughs> inner emptiness. <laughs> exactly right. Um, uh, Bill Rusher, who was the first publisher of National Review, was this kind of a very, very kind of you know, austere looking guy. You know, his name was Bill Rusher. It sounded like very kind of reedy and thin and like bony and had <laughs> dark uh, horn rim glasses. And he had a saying he would say, All you need to remember is that politicians will always, 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 always let you down. And there's something liberating about that. There is. Yeah. There is. Um, I've written a lot about this in uh, the Jewish Journal. I mean, we have an obsession with politics in the Jewish community. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. And one of my sort of missions with the paper is just to introduce all kinds of stuff that has nothing to do with politics, like poetry and food and books and culture and all these yeah. amazing stories. The things that really matter, actually. I think so. I think so. But um, why do you think we have this obsession? Well, uh, I, I'm tempted to think it's because two, two reasons. One is I think the country is in that happiness curve now as a country that that's mm. we are at that point where we just were old enough to have done a lot of bad stuff and done a lot of good stuff and we're now running out of optimism mm -hmm. um, and we got to find that again 
Uh, we're zigging, zigging and zagging back and forth. I mean, the, the idea that we once we voted for George W. Bush and then we went and voted for Obama and now we voted for Trump, that's a sign of a country that's like a little bit having a crack up. Maybe we'll get over it, but there's nothing consistent there. I mean, when you think of American foreign policy, it was incredibly consistent with tiny little gradations, but basically consistent from 1946 to 1992, actually beyond that, to, ni- to 2000, to beyond that, to 2008, right, really, till Obama. Fairly consistent understanding of what uh, uh, America's roles in the country, in the world, and we've kind of run out of that. All right. The second thing, I think, is that times are really good. Like, we're really good. We've run out of the big causes. Yeah, and like... so now we're just going to, like, pick at each other. But, like, basically, because we can't, we haven't connected to, like, essential gratitude for how we got there. I mean, we've forgotten that that a lot of the institutions that we now think are stupid. I mean, you know, if you're Trump, you think NATO's dumb. But NATO's dumb because it really worked. It worked so well, we forgot we needed to do it. Um, I always use this as an example. Like, um, if, you take, if you could pick somebody from, American from 60 years ago, and you could bring them up to the present. 60 years ago is not that long, right? And say, hey, guess what? In, in 2018... Poor people in this country, people who have no money, are fat. You're like, you're crazy. What are you talking about? Poor people aren't fat. Poor people are skinny because they're hungry. They can't afford food. Like, no, 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 no. We solved that problem so much with food stamps. Food stamps is a very successful program. Our poor people are obese. And they have a flat screen. And they have a flat screen. Now, that, I mean, that's pretty good. I mean, I'm not, you know, there's, not, there's some problems with that, too. But, like, that is essentially a sign of a country that is good and trying to solve problems, and maybe we there are unintended consequences to that. But, you know, we'd all, I think we'd all be better if we started every day and ended every day just with a little bit of gratitude for what we got. And I think we'd find we'd, <laughs> we're, we're, we're less furious with people because they disagree with us on a, what a marginal, tax, a marginal uh, tax rate should be, or they disagree with us about um, Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade, even, or, or who the president, uh, you know, whether the president should be a good guy or a bad guy. I mean, all those things are kind of small. Roe v. Wade's not small, but like it's not. Yeah. You know, uh, do you think people also have a need to feel important? And politics yeah. nourishes that need. Yeah. It makes me feel very important. Yeah, yeah. Because I'm dealing with big national, international issues and uh, stuff. Yeah. Everybody wants to be a pundit. If it, it, people in the old days when you wanted to be when you wanted to be a reporter, you they'd say, okay, well, go and work at a small paper and cover the little league games and cover the city, uh, you know, public hearings. And then you'd get promoted and you'd go somewhere, you'd cover something else. Now it's, no, 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 first, first I want to know what you think. I mean, it's a very sort of young person idea. Like, let me tell you what I think. Let me tell you what my opinions are, as if, you know, who cares? Right. Was it that, uh, that Daniel, Daniel Bell said, uh, saying to, was trying to, you know, I forget which rabbi he was. He was trying to, like, uh, offend a rabbi. And he said, huh, for your information, you know, I don't believe in God. And the rabbi said, well, let me ask you something. Do you think God cares? <laughs> like you think you're that important? I'm like no, it'd be helpful if we all remembered that we're not all pundits. The, the clever pundits. answer to that that I've heard is the God you don't believe in, I don't believe either. Right? <laughs> that's right. That's, that's, that's right. That's better. Fungible. That's better. Yeah, um, but you know, rabbis I think have uh, in the in the Jewish community, they've really run with this mantle of politics in the pulpit. <laughs> yeah, and they've really. Convinced themselves that. Uh, you know, politics and saving the world is a big Jewish value. It's on our cover this week. And I understand the impulse, uh, but at the same time, they've reinforced the in- inordinate importance that we put on politics at the expense of our individual lives. Jews have this urge, this feeling. Maybe it's a sense of gratitude. We're so grateful for America that, you know, we want to help fix all the problems. We want to fix homelessness. and. And, right. and, and so forth. It's a real Jewish urge. It's called Chikun Olam, repairing oh, the Olam, world. Right, right. Probably more. Um, I th- uh, you can find that too. You find that definitely. You find that in the Episcopalian Church, which I go to every Sunday. Um, every now and then. Have you ever been to a synagogue? Uh, I've been to a synagogue. I went to a, a couple of really awesome weddings, but they were um, in German. Mm. So one was in Vienna, which was fantastic. One actually, the the synagogue in Vienna I went to was the most interesting place I'd ever been, because it was still around. In Vienna, which was not, you know, it was an old one. And it was there because it was sort of built in the crux of two other buildings. So to destroy it, you'd have to bring down the other buildings. So mm-hmm. they just let it up. And I was walking to this wedding, and some old guy sort of grabbed me, I don't know, he would grab me by the arm. This is beautiful, sitting incredible, like the ancient, you know. And he points to the side, uh, to one side, and there's um, 
the names of all the members of the synagogue who died in World War One. Mm. So it's a, on one side, they're all there. And uh, so there's uh, even t- uh, stone tablets jutting out because there are a lot of names. And uh, he said, you know, these are people who died fighting for the Kaiser. And then on the other side are the, are the members of the, of the congregation who died in the Holocaust. Wow. And he said, this is what they did to us 20 years later. Mm. And that was a much bigger wall with many more names. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, it's like, I don't know, this is maybe 10 years ago, right? 2008, say. It seems like he's talking about a world that's a million years ago. Like, it's a different world, different planet. But it wasn't to him. And it's not to us. And it doesn't to us. This coming Saturday night, we're going back 2,000 years. We're going to be crying over the destruction of the temple. Right. From the year 70 and 400 years before that. Right. That's... That's that's a long memory. <laughs> well, it's a long we memory, cry. but we, uh, we've been traumatized by by our past, and we have almost an obligation to remember it. And then, but what's interesting is that five nights later, it's the holiday of love, Tubeav. And wait, Tubishvat uh, is Saturday right. night. Oh, really? It's like five nights later. It's Tubeav, which is the holiday of love, which is an obscure right. Valentine's Day for the Jews. Right. No one knows about it. It's this obscure. We're, we're writing about it in the journal no, this good. week. That's good. Because we'd like to start a movement <laughs> yeah, to make the right. holiday of love as important as the holiday of death. Well, I think the point is that the people don't change, right? They don't. The same impulses we have, we're not, be- we're not better. It's not like we're, all, we're, we're actually a better species now than we were 2,000 years ago. No way. We're the same. We're struggling with the same struggles. Maybe we're better at it. or Maybe we're worse at it in some places, but... It's not as if we're remembering, we're not really remembering the past. We're just trying to re-understand our present because we're, all that stuff could happen again. It, that's why we remember it, and that's yeah. why so many Jews are paranoid. I come from an Arab country. We didn't suffer like my Ashkenazi friends' right. brothers did in the Holocaust, so we're not as traumatized. But there's always a sense of trauma in the Jew, and I think one of the ways we sort of act that out is by helping the world as much as we can to... We're not just showing our gratitude, but we have an innate desire to have the world love us. <laughs> That's, uh, I think we all do. Yeah. Now, one, before I let you go, uh, how do you go from Hollywood to becoming a conservative pundit? Uh, what, what, <laughs> why would you want to? <laughs> why would you want to? Well, tell me about the beginning of when you started writing um, op-eds. I think it was I had a friend who had, was working in the White House. The George H.W. Bush White House. So this is 90-90. And um, I went to D.C. And he said, oh, you come to D.C., man, we'll have lunch. So I went to D.C. and I had lunch. And I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And then uh, Clinton was elected. I did a little bit of work for him in the, in the, in the campaign. And then Clinton was elected. And um, I went for a conference. Like post-Clinton. What are, what are we going to do after Clinton? You know, It's going to be crazy. The end of the world. Clinton got elected. And um, and then I met John O'Sullivan, who's the editor of National Review. He said, here's what you're going to do. He's an English guy. Here's what you I want from you. I want a certain column from you, and I want it every, every issue. I said, all right, I'll do it. And that's kind of how that happened. Which year was that? This uh, January of 1993. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. So in between Cheers episodes, you'd yeah. be writing about politics. I'd write about, you know, I wrote from the conceit of a, it was uh, Al Gore. Letters from Al was called. And it was letters from Al Gore to his friend, in uh, in the Amazon Amazonian rainforest, who was like out of it, and the letters were Al explaining what was going on in politics. So it was really from the perspective of a guy who was had a front row seat to everything, but was clueless. So my Al, my version of Al Gore was like he's a nice guy, but he doesn't know what's going on, and everybody's a lot more sophisticated than he is, and he's just a, he's just a nice person who's a little, maybe a little dim. Um, and he did that for the rest of the presidency, and then and then thank God Al Gore lost because I said if he if he win, if he wins I'm done. And then I just sort of like wrote about anything. Now. But I, you know, I may ask you to pick up some of that for the Jewish Journal. <laughs> we have a huge readership. That's right, especially in Hollywood. That's right. That's right. Were you raised conservative? Not really. I mean, I really was kind of agnostic or not political at all. Um, certainly not in terms of any kind of party politics. Uh, and then, um, but it was a very liberal time. I went to very very liberal schools. So I went to very progressive boarding school, very progressive college, university, and. Um, then when, uh, you know, two things happened. One, as were a you mugged mine, by reality? Yeah. I was mugged, the reality I was mugged by were two things. One, I read uh, Paul Johnson's Modern Times. 
a friend of mine who is now a, uh, a a brilliant guy on CNN. He gave it to me is uh, when I was driving out to LA. He said, "Read this on the beach because you're not going to learn anything." So I re- was reading that on the beach, and it sort of blew my mind because a lot of the stuff. I mean, I was a history. I mean, I wasn't a history major, but I knew a lot about history. And I didn't know about some of this stuff. Paul Johnson is a practicing Catholic who wrote yeah. my favorite book oh. on the history of the Jews. Oh, yeah. It's a great history. It's a great book. It's a great book. Um, and then he wrote uh, – then, and then um, – So what is it about that book? Uh, the unflinching uh, uh, account of communism and what it did and, and the hundreds of millions of people that it killed mm. and the uh, – alternative explanation for things that I was taught, especially in the latter part of the 20th century, were because, you know, American CIA-backed thugs did X or, X or did Y. Like, you know, uh, the CIA killed Allende and installed Pinochet, which they may have done, except that people always forget that inflation uh, was, uh, in Chile, was 60,000% a month, and there is not a leader around who can preside over 60,000% a month inflation and not at least at least suffer through a few assassination attempts. Mostly that leader's going to get it, right? Um, and then the second thing that happened was the Berlin Wall came down. And I was taught, really, in high school and college, that Ronald Reagan was a dangerous lunatic, that we were all going to die in a nuclear holocaust, that the idea of um, the co- being a cold warrior or uh, uh, in favor of sort of nuclear armament or putting missiles in, in Western Germany, the NX missile in Germany or, you know, in, in the West, and standing up to the Soviets was a mistake and that they were basically our friends and all we needed to do was to have peaceful coexistence and they would be fine. It's just a different system. And then, in ni- and, you know, in 1989, the Berlin Wall comes down and it wasn't supposed to happen. It's so ironic that... Uh here you have the left who absolutely despises the right. man who's actually doing this kind of rapprochement, both with uh, Putin and, with, Putin uh, and Kim. with North Korea. Yeah, right. And he's wrong. I think he, I, I'm a conservative. I think he's wrong on both cases. But I'm, I'm, I'm stunned is that the left thinks he's wrong too. It's like, but what do you mean? You think this is this guy's your <laughs> this is your, what you your, want. This is your playbook? This guy's been reading the New York Times for 30 years, 40, 50 years every every day. Like he's he he, he learned his lesson. He's doing it. Yeah. It's an Obama playbook to sit <laughs> yeah. down with Kim. Yeah, and yeah. sit down. Yeah, that's there's so many ironies. Um, but I was told that that wasn't going to happen. That couldn't happen. That Reagan couldn't do that. I was told when Reagan went to the Berlin Wall and said, "Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall." It was a vulgar act of rudeness mm-hmm. and an assumption that they wanted the wall down and the people on the other side of the wall wanted it to come down and that the Soviet Union really had it was a bad thing and there were good guys and bad guys. I guess the equivalence would have been had Trump yesterday said, you know, stop <laughs> stop hacking or Yeah, or or just do whatever you want like hacking, yeah. you know. Get out of Ukraine. Right, right, right. And Crimea. you know, we're going to put right. the, you know, we're going to put um uh anti-ballistic missile Technology in, in in Poland, right? You know, it was Obama who double, cro- who double crossed the, right. the, the, the poles, mm-hmm. and I would you know I, I would say yeah we're going to do it. What are you going to do about it? But you know Ben Shapiro had an interesting comment the other night on Bill Maher. He said you know behind all the talk they still have tough sanctions going on against Russia right now. Yeah, that's right. I mean that is that is without a doubt true. I mean he hasn't done anything that, but I don't think he can. Some of those, I mean, a lot of that's just the Congress anyway. Um, it, it, and Putin certainly knows that. Yeah, it's it's, but it's never a good idea. I don't think it's ever a good idea to to waste an opportunity to tell a troublesome nuisance mischief maker of any kind, whether it's Putin or Kim, that they are on borrowed time. Mm-hmm. That's always a good thing. Going and being nice, there's no upside, zero. Especially upside. if you're holding all the cards. I mean, yeah. Russia is in major trouble right oh, now huge trouble on so right. many levels. Now, 2020, is there a chance that Trump could win again? Yeah, I think so. Seriously? Look, Democrats are really terrible. Uh, I think the Democrats still live in a fantasy land where they believe that um, the most important issues in America are, you know, transgender rights. Um, Obama did a number on them, a big number, by being so incredibly unpopular and polarizing. Of course, it was all papered over, but, you know, the state houses, governorships, all the, the, the seed corn of your political operation are gone. I mean, they don't have that. They, don't, they not only don't have a message, they don't have a messenger. Now, they could probably 
find one or two. The, the governor of Louisiana is very strong. Very, it seems like he's somebody to watch. Um, you know, in American politics, just in general, a Southern Democrat is sort of unstoppable because most Americans are basically kind of liberal about some stuff, but they basically, but they're not crazy liberal. They're conservative about community, and a Southern Democrat kind of evokes that. And the Democrats don't have any Southern Democrats. Um, but I think if they found one, they could that person could win. I think Biden's going to run, and Biden's going to be you know a, a, an interesting counterpoint to Trump. Um, but he could still win. Look, you know, economy's growing, unemployment's down. Uh, the, the question is whether there's an alternative for him that's not exhausting. Um, if there's a you know if, if Biden was ten years younger or somebody like that, who could just run on. Ha- this this slogan like haven't you had enough? <laughs> you wonder hasn't Trump had enough? It's so no, exhausting. The guy loses. hardly sleeps. I mean, you know, he's this is his thing. Yeah. He loves chaos. And uh, you know, the thing about chaos is you forget. Uh, I did a podcast today, and it was a good question. What's like, the name well, of your podcast? It's called uh, the, uh, we, uh, on Ricochet. Uh, this was Glop podcast. It's me and Jonah. Jonah we call it Glop because it's G for Goldberg. L-O for Long, and P for John Podoritz. So John Podoritz is the... Uh, you all three of you? All three of us. Wow. Um, we wanted to call it Two Jews, Three Opinions, but you know, <laughs> it's an old joke that nobody gets. Uh, and uh, Podoritz asked, he said, uh, okay, here's, here's a question. What happened a week ago today? Or a week ago yesterday. Today's Tuesday, right? Yeah, a week ago yesterday. Um, I don't know what happened a week ago yesterday. Oh. Brett Kavanaugh. He nominated Brett Kavanaugh, which sounds like a million years ago. Wasn't it like a it's million years so ago? So interesting what yeah. you say. Yeah. A million years ago. Unbelievable. Like, well, that was a we week. get so consumed. And you're like, oh, God, this, I, I can't it's go through so another week true. like that. It's so true. <laughs> We're all going to die. <laughs> just of exhaustion. America's going to have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Well, before we do, you have to come to my house for Shabbat. That's when we yeah, reconnect. We said, oh, I'm d- delighted to uh, have you, Rob Long from Ricochet, and I hope we can have you again. Happy to. Thanks for having me. Take care.